Hello, and welcome to Ready for Anything, a podcast about getting poised for greatness. I'm Linda Lacina, Special Projects Director of Entrepreneur.com, and today I'd like to introduce you to Seamus Jones. Hi, Seamus. Hello. Seamus has done what a lot of people dream of doing, running an indie food business. He's the founder and executive briner of Brooklyn Brine, an artisanal pickle maker using unique ingredients like bourbon and maple syrup. He turned a layoff from a chef job in 2009 into what's now a seven-figure business when seeing double-digit year-over-year growth. Of course, behind any growth and behind any dream is a lot of backbreaking work. We're going to talk to Seamus about what it actually takes to make that dream happen and what he's learned so far. He'll also explain to us exactly what Palette Tetris is. But first, a word from our sponsor. Running a small business is unpredictable. It comes with thousands of challenges. And while you never know what may happen next, Jays for Business can help you control your finances. Find business news, stories, insights, and expert tips all in one place at chase.com slash for business. Hi, Seamus. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming here. We really, really appreciate it. Yeah. So I am fascinated by your business and fascinated by your love for pickle making. And I want you to explain to me first off um, sort of what, what brought you to it, what draws you to the art. I think it all comes back to kind of two distinct channels that were running side by side. In my personal life, I made this kind of semi-conscious decision when I was uh, in my very early teens to eliminate meat from my diet. Why I say semi-conscious? Because it wasn't this kind of like PETA animal rights driven choice. It was a distaste for meat itself and unpalatable quality. And then also this weird empathy that I would get from looking over at my mother's cat and thinking, wow, there's just something here that doesn't really add up for myself. The second part that led me into being an executive briner is really flourishing in the culinary arts industry. When I was 15, I started doing dishes at a restaurant and just, you know, my career trajectory from there was a natural evolution of, you know, a a strong work ethic and, and just kind of this possibly OCD nature. So when I really found my stride in the culinary arts world, I found this quality in being able to take seasonal produce and with creative intention, capture the season by preserving it or pickling it, adding those notes that you look for when you're a a chef, you know, your own unique twist on it, and then being able to stratify the use of those pickled items throughout the year. Because with vegetarian cooking, you know, we're not privileged to having a, a prime cut of meat as the center focal point of a, a dish. So really, you know, you look for those kind of extra little attention-driven details that you can add on a plate. You know, my background's not a familial one where my grandmother, you know, grew me up making pickles. It was, it was really the, the chef culinary arts world. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And um, you're a certified pickle maker? Yeah. I'm a certified pickle maker through Cornell University by way of the uh, Better Processing Control School for Acidifying Low-Acid Foods. So to me, that sounds pretty impressive. And I, I love showing off the certification with the the Cornell stamp. I have a lot of family. Actually, my uncle was a professor of the creative writing department at Cornell University. So it's an amazing thing to have, but also take a lot of pride in that because it it shows uh, a really thorough process on our end on the science of pickle making and less the art. Very cool. Now, take me back to the uh, the early days of um, your business at Brooklyn Brine. Uh, can you paint a picture for everybody who's listening to this? What am I looking at? What am I seeing? What am I feeling when I walk into the room? What am I smelling? You know, <laughs> d- tell, me, tell me what's happening. 
Well, literally, I mean, you're you're looking at a bunch of wired, energetic, enthusiastic, you know, individuals that are kind of all just figuring it out simultaneously. A little backstory, you know, I was a chef, vegetarian chef around the city. There's a real kind of limited amount of restaurants that you can kind of cycle through before you've all of a sudden been at all of them. And my last position as executive chef, it, it just kind of started to, I don't know, let's say get burnout from working in that industry and really wanted to kind of break off on my own. So the the first step in this entrepreneur kind of vision and path was uh, independently contracting at restaurants in and around Brooklyn, bringing vegan and vegetarian culinary items, menu items to the businesses that I consulted at. Literally those early days of Brooklyn Brine resulted from a contract that I had uh, consulting at a new business that was opening up that ended kind of abruptly and sooner than the agreement was. And I circled back to an entrepreneur who has since passed away, very sad. Um, he gave me the most, one of the greatest opportunities in my life by, you know, I, I ran into him right as I got laid off and, and six hours later, he opened up his restaurant to allow for me to start this business without a plan, without operating capital, without any of the kind of necessary tools that you need or that a more typical business would have starting off. So an incredible amount of gratitude is owed to that individual. Our work days were 10 p.m. till 8 in the morning, uh, <laughs> which is a pretty odd and miserable. That's why I say like a, a bunch of energetic coworkers because we're just blasting coffee and Slayer on the radio. And, <laughs> uh, you know, the Japanese chef knives that I, I loved, you know, using in my former career, just chopping produce and stuffing it into jars. And the actual layout of the kitchen is a, a very small line kitchen with a six burner gas range stove, a flat top griddle, and a grill, which all of those devices can obviously create heat. So, you know, I went from having four or five stock pots on the six burner grill to at the end of the 10 month period that we were at that location, you know, about 14 different stock pots just on every surface area that create heat. And then outside of that line kitchen, we would be spread out on all the cafe tables with jars set up and individually measuring out spices into each jar. And it's just such a, I don't know, unique way to start a business. I think what it really proved to me, though, is working those heinous hours and the challenges, the logistical challenges of having a shared space, that there was a, a deep-rooted passion and I was onto something. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm really thankful for that period. So it, it, just for everyone's uh, awareness, can you explain all the things that you guys did by hand uh, in those very, very early days? Sure. Until recently, nothing really changed. It starts from getting the glassware delivered in. So you get, well, when I first started, I would borrow a friend's truck to go to the our distributor that we're still working with in Brooklyn, you know, pick up like five or 10 cases, bring it over to the restaurant, bring it down the hatch, store it in the basement. Then the produce delivery would come, so 50-pound bushels of cucumbers, the fire line down into the basement, precariously stack in the shared walk-in, which is a refrigerator space with the restaurant. Spices were coming in the container size that a restaurant would get, you know, one pound of this and that, uh, getting vinegar into one-gallon containers and cases. From there, as soon as the restaurant ended at 10 p.m., the dishwasher would still be there. He'd be cleaning up. We'd be coming in carrying up all these items by hand, you know, washing, sorting the cucumbers, cutting everything with those, again, Japanese knives and Slayer blasting in the background. <laughs> uh, 
sanitizing the jars in a three compartment sink, hand measuring out each spice individually, uh, hand stuffing each jar uh, with the cucumbers and raw produce individually, pouring the apple cider vinegar and measuring out the salt and if it has sugar or any other fun, awesome adjunct ingredient into the pots, heating them up. I mean, every step of the process is done by hand. I mean, that's the next six years of the company that is making maybe 100 jars of pickles a week to uh, upwards of 15,000 jars a week uh, at this point, all by hand. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in the very, very early days, it was 100 jars? Yeah, like, approximately, yeah, approximately, a week, you know, if, if the demand was there. I mean, fortunately, it grew pretty quickly um, in the way that I can track it by memory because we didn't know what invoices were. We didn't know... <laughs> The, the first year is basically a throwaway because I have some, a couple of handwritten um, receipts and like a log that, you know, we had everything charted. But I remember specifically that first month because of my work ethic, I'm, I'm not one that just kind of gets laid off and sits back mm-hmm. and takes some me time. So I immediately went into the city and took a job as a sous chef at a restaurant. And that lasted for a month. That was the last time I worked for anyone else. But yeah, I would say probably about 100 jars a week. And you know, fast forward with the top line growth that we experienced year after year, you know, we're pushing out upwards of 15,000 jars a week, uh, still all by hand at this mm-hmm. point. And how many employees did you have um, in the first year? So that's really funny because from when we started and figuring out the process, uh, you know, we had to ramp up to probably four or five coworkers on the production floor, mm-hmm. and but the business just wasn't there. And as the business has scaled, it, it became very formulaic where we are so strong in our process and we just focus, laser focus on streamlining and being able to make it sustainable to be able to grow that it's become formulaic. So back then, if we would have switched to 200 jars a week, we probably would have had to double our workforce. Now for us to add another 3,000 jars a week, we have to add one coworker. So it's at this point, you know, ranging from, depending on the time of the year, about six to 10 coworkers on the production floor. What's different now is that, you know, we have titles like operations manager, we're seeking out a nationwide salesperson at this point, you know, bookkeepers, accountants, delivery people. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of scaled more on that end than the actual production floor. I, I think that's an interesting point, right? Because with uh, any business, uh, there it comes sort of that, that tipping point where, you know, there's only so much you can kind of do in the wee hours of the night, burning the midnight oil, <laughs> right, right, right. right? Right, and you you realize, okay, we need to we need to do some formal things. Yeah, you know, we need to do some. Things. So, um, uh, you mentioned to me that um, there's a there's a certain point where you you have to sort of stop being precious about things, right? So, tell me a little bit about what that meant for Brooklyn Brian because it's different for every uh, every business, but especially for every food business. So, what does that mean for you guys? Well, first off, I mean, you had a really good point about at a certain point. You know, you have to start getting real about things and it gets really weird at four in the morning. You know? <laughs> like, did I add salt to this? Uh, am I seeing things out of the corner of my eye that aren't there? Um, we were across from this dive bar that no longer exists that countless nights we'd hear people just screaming outside at four in the morning about getting kicked out and not being served that last Jaeger bomb. So I would say where it starts getting real is when the business starts getting real and you, you kind of see, you know, business is really interesting because the more you grow and even in those early stages, it's a lot harder to kind of pivot quickly. You know, everything has to be planned out and premeditated. So the first inclination that something had to change was certainly the 
10 p.m. to 8 in the morning is not sustainable because I wasn't able to, at 8 in the morning, just lay it down. You know, I had to, you know, start fielding phone calls and making deliveries and, and sourcing ingredients. You know, so that was the first move. The second move into a, a dedicated facility that was still shared with another company, but it was their commissary kitchen, and that was our Gowanus factory that we just moved out of in March. You know, that was really a demand of business. Early on, the local region of Whole Foods, the New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, found us, and they were like, we love you guys. We we love these pickles. Let's let's get going, you know? And that saw us finding our first distributor that, you know, all of a sudden we scaled into to 40 Whole Foods stores approximately locally and a real jump in production. And then you start seeing things like, well, the way that we were doing it, there's all these extra steps that either don't make sense financially, don't make sense for the process and the quality of the product, are really, you know, kind of first and foremost for the coworkers. These really strenuous things, challenges that in a more proper setting wouldn't be there. That actually is, if you come full circle, a testament to when I answer your question of how many coworkers are on the production floor, that was really the challenge. If we can have pallet jacks and forklifts and, you know, loading docks, then it just becomes easier for everyone. A happier place to work. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. what about in the the chopping? Right, uh, you, you start with the hand chopping, right, with your lovely, you know, Japanese Japanese knives, Japanese knives, right? <laughs> Slayer coffee, <laughs> Slayer coffee, right? No, just a, a lot of gumption. But that does something to the hands. These repetitive motions, right? And yeah. so you watch your your coworkers go through this. What what does that lead to? What do you notice? What does it lead to for you? Well, the maladies all have really entertaining names like tennis elbow and you know such, but it's not so cool when you start seeing like back braces and elbow braces. And and cuts to the hand and exhaustion too. This business is really interesting to watch the swing, the up and the downswing of, you know, when it's busy, it's crush, kill, destroy, busy. And when it's on a downswing, it's still really busy. And it's a labor-intensive job. And I always adopted a philosophy that I learned from uh, working at two of the finest vegetarian restaurants in Seattle, Washington, the importance of company culture and really taking care of those that are taking care of you. And that philosophy kind of really, you know, permeated into the visceral side of seeing people getting burned out and, and just thinking this isn't sustainable, you know, and something has to change. So then the focus becomes for myself as the, the CEO, entrepreneur, what have you, how do we really, you know, rectify this? How can we start, you know, planning something that, you know, will still have that same intention as when we were doing things a certain way? but just make it better and more awesome for everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so um, you will be um, moving into a little bit more automation. Can you tell us a little bit about how that will impact both productivity but also like wellness? <laughs> yeah, the productivity and the scale with this equipment when it's all set up and, and running um, will you know streamline the process. We have such crazy bottlenecks right now with our production. I had referenced Palette Tetris and so we can get more into that. Um, <laughs> but will allow for a a 4x return on a a production yield from what an average day has with Brooklyn Brine and really take the the strain of that just sheer physicality of producing pickles off the table. But again, still nothing's going to change to the end guest, to the end consumer Mm -hmm. that buys the product. It's still the same. You know, all eyes are on attention and quality and detail, um, but really just upping that 
company culture pride that we have in our mm-hmm, company. Mm-hmm. Because it's a machine that will sort of replicate what you guys were able to create with a hand cut system, but do it in a way that people can have their backs. And Yeah. With the slicing machine, it's really, you feed the cucumbers in on one end and it's the centrifugal catches the cucumbers and then pushes them through a slicer that is laser guided. So it actually does it the you know, the same quality as a human hand and a human eye can do, and then spits it out into a return on the other end. I can't stress enough how bad your joints and tendons start to feel after gripping a knife for six hours a day, cutting, you know, literally we're processing one ton of raw product every day, you know, into finished product. And it's just after 300 plus days of production each year, uh, it's not sustainable. We mentioned a couple times Palette Tetris. Uh, what is Palette Tetris? Palette Tetris is a, it's this amazing game that we developed years ago by way of the kind of preciousness spaces in New York. We're 100% vertical. We do all of our own manufacturing. We're insufferably proud of that. We make every single jar by hand in our factory in Brooklyn, which we've had four locations, and I think the first two were restaurants, so it's not fair to call those factories. What it is is being a size 15, 16 foot shoved into a size one shoe where every step that you need to make that's positive in your direction, you need to take 10 steps back, just moving basically everything out of the way. We're able to, at this stage of growth, rectify that this past March by moving into a factory down in Sunset Park from Gowanus that's three times the size of our former facility, but already we're starting to see kind of the same things happening again. And I guess, you know, you chalk it up to growing pains and you just try to always have your eyes on the prize and that long game, long view vision of how you can further prevent those bottlenecks down the Mm -hmm. road. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point, right? Because uh, people talk about sort of listening to the business, right? It's important to listen to business. And sometimes the business is tugging at your sleeve, right? Sometimes the business is um, crying in the corner, right? (laughs) How do you know when to act, right? Because not everything is something that needs to be dealt with right away. Um, but, But some things absolutely Absolutely um, have to be. What goes into your thought process in listening to the business and sort of deciding when to act? I think, you know, first and foremost, it's an internal checklist. And so when I go into the factory every day and, you know, the quality of life for my coworkers, you know, if it becomes clear pretty quickly when a change needs to happen. So we might be more of a unique position where growth has happened organically. We've never had a salesperson or, or really a driver on that end. It's it's all been, you know, attention has been brought to us. And I would say, you know, first off, the quality of the product, but also we've been blessed with a lot of press. People are really into what we're doing, and it's just been amazing. But, um, you know, my internal checklist is that always, because I'm the one that's also in the factory side by side with them every day, and it's got to be a, a good you know, a good clean operation. There's other things that you listen to your business that you see over time where, you know, the delta between sales and operating capital, you know, that's something that it's not sustainable in the long run to be running a deficit and quite honestly tiring for an entrepreneur. So, you know, those are projects that take pretty seriously and are are up there pretty high on the priority list. There's another amazing component of listening to your business, but I would say it's by way of the guests that are actually supporting your company and buying your product, whether that be on the store level of independent specialty or even grocery retailers, the distributors, certainly the guests that buy your product. You know, if they're telling you something that they, they want to see or something that, you know, could be done better, you really take that to heart and you act on it. I, I would say that's like kind of the trifecta of what really 
I'm impassioned about and what drives me mm-hmm. about listening to my business. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You've had some um, really great uh, sort of minds you've been able to tap into uh, in the sort of the local craft food uh, business. Steve Hindi of the Broken Brewery, who, uh, by the way, is another uh, guest, esteemed guest of my podcast, sure. um, as well as uh, a Sam of uh, Dogfish Head Brewery. So um, how important has it been for you to sort of uh, tap into that network, to tap into these these food denizens that um, are uh, around and about in this environment? How, how important has that been? There's a selfish answer and there's a business answer. <laughs> I would say that the selfish answer is being huge fans or a huge fan of people mentioned and, and other people outside of the, that specific sphere of local entrepreneurs or makers. There's something that's just so rewarding about this community that's been uh, built around me over this last six and a half years that couldn't have been premeditated in the beginning because I didn't even know, you know, that there's just so many amazing makers and doers and entrepreneurs. And what's really rewarding about, you know, my relationship with Sam, with Dogfish, uh, because we're a collaborative partner of theirs for the last four years and we have our off-centered beer pickle on the market and also (laughs) my restaurant Pickle Shack where, um, you know, our our draft lines are fully dedicated to Dogfish and it's, it's just been awesome. But also, you know, I got to meet Steve because of Sam, because we did an event together at Brooklyn Brewery. And specifically that, you know, the context of that, those conversations and that relationship, I was coming from a really naive place earlier on in my career where automation scared me and moving into a more streamlined process by way of having machines was kind of bugging me out. And being able to talk to these guys and hearing their philosophy, how you know, automation all the way, bring it as long as you're not replacing a coworker with a machine, you know, that really struck a chord with me. And that was the paradigm shift I was able to undergo uh, almost three years ago. They got the ball rolling for all the things that, you know, as a responsible CEO, we need to be doing at this point right now by way of bringing in the slicing machine and the filling and the capping machine. So, you know, outside of that, there's concentric circles of other entrepreneurs, you know, small and large, craft beer, craft food, you know, what have you that are really instrumental in that everyday gut check, that morale booster, you know, just having a bevy of like-minded individuals that are all kind of on that path, that philosophical path of what your intention is with your business is just, it's king. It's Mm -hmm. king. People say cash is king. That's, That's king to me. Do you think that you would be able to uh, have uh, done the growth that you've you've had um, with without that network? No, no, hands down, no. And I mean, it started really with uh, Bob McClure, fellow pickle maker with McClure's Pickles. Uh, his company's about three or four years older than me. Early days, met him on an event in the city, and then we ended up grabbing lunch together at the restaurant that we used to manufacture out of, and. I just remember we were having this conversation. He just, you know, kind of flippantly was like, oh, 20C license. And I just remember I looked at him and I'm like dumbfounded. Like, and I didn't verbally say what's a 20C license, but he just looks at me. And it was this moment where, you know, if there was this real fierce competition or there wasn't, you know, this kind of communal support or all the qualities, you know, that we get out of these networks, he could have crushed me. He could have been like, oh, you know, you don't have that. I'm, I'm shutting you down. He just looked at me. He's like, you know, that license you have. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, word, son. And, you know, a week later we had it. You know, I. <laughs> yeah. it's just so, like, it's humbling to think about how many different examples of just that have happened over the past six and a half years. And what's inspiring as of lately is that it doesn't always have to be the people telling me. It can be, 
now in this pay it forward, you know, approach where, you know, I have in any given week, at least five or six emails from some, you know, smaller startup pickle company or some smaller startup business across the nation, Australia, you know, through and throughout. And in any way that you can kind of, in a very open and supportive way and reciprocal, because I'm certainly not going to waste my time with someone that doesn't, you know, add to the conversation that just wants me to tell them the checklist of how to do everything. You know, that is just as rewarding because when you have to sit back and articulate your path of how you got there and all the trials and tribulations, the ups and downs, you know, what's on your mind, it just, it's such a reinforcing exercise that is empowering as well Mm -hmm. that you can just launch off of. You talked about the McClure's folks, the pickle makers in general, right? How do you guys, is there a sort of a way you guys can spot each other? Like, <clears throat> are there any t- any tells, any signs? Yeah. So I think, <laughs> especially with uh, when you're starting out in those early days, pickle making, as we mentioned, is very labor intensive. Everything weighs, uh, everything's really heavy. <laughs> um, when you don't have pallet jacks, when you don't have a forklift, uh, who our forklift, her name is Betty White, she rules. <laughs> uh, without those things, you know, you find yourself just the physicality of it. So what it did for me is it, it created these disproportionate kind of like Popeye looking lower arms, what forearms, what have you. I would say also, this is the hardest job I've ever had. It's literally the hardest job I've ever had. Not even just production, but you know, also that CEO hat of being, you know, a business owner. So I would say a real bags under your eyes and just kind of fatigue. You know, it takes it takes a long time to build up the stamina that's needed to run a successful business. And um, and then lastly, the smell. I mean, I just <laughs> came straight off the D train from our factory down in Sunset Park and my awesome wool flannel coat just reeks of spicy maple bourbon pickles that we were making they're still making right now as i'm leaving the factory so yeah i would say that and then also uh how your eyes just light up when you know someone else is a pickle maker and you just want to talk to them and i'll just give one brief anecdote Um, my wife and i were driving out to chicago for a, a business event and we decided to take kind of the longer way and we went through pittsburgh and we stopped on this street that I don't remember what it was, and I just remember I, I walked past this bar or restaurant, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw this huge display of pickles. And went inside, inquired about it, and the bartender's like, that's my husband's company. We own this bar and restaurant, and it was Pittsburgh Pickle Company. And John and I had never met each other before, and of this brief half an hour conversation that's now extended out for the past six months of constantly texting and being in each other's corners, we're amazing friends, you know, right off the bat. And it was that shared kind of passion and enthusiasm for pickle making and, and entrepreneurial spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, but what's interesting to me, too, is that you've said to me uh, that it's a passion, right? Um, uh, it's not a passion project, right? Right. right. Um, so, so what's the difference and what skills do you employ, do you depend on to keep it uh, a passion that you're making into a reality? You know, passion project, art project, I think those are two kind of interchangeable terms, in in my opinion. I take this very seriously. And we strive to be a responsible capitalist venture with reciprocal, fair, every step, every action that we do, but always sustaining and growing the business. And early on, I had a certain naivety coming from the chef world where, you know, I was like, oh, it's going to be all New York State produce and it's going to only be when it's in season. And, you know, I started July 22nd of 2009 and by November when I was 
telling my friends like, oh, we're out of cucumber pickles. They're like, dude, you're a pickle company. Like, <laughs> come on, you know? So I think the technique that I employ to keep it going is really about team building, mm-hmm. you know, and surrounding myself with people that if I don't know how to do something, well, of course they know how to do it better than I do. And really focusing on that medium to slower growth, sustainable growth uh, that we adopt and employ without having to be told by uh, a board of investors that we need to start buying our glassware from China instead of New Jersey or Pennsylvania. Those are the kilns that our glassware is fired on. And then, you know, realizing that there's this economy that's being created. There was a, at our five-year anniversary, our restaurant Pickle Shack had been open for a year. So it was like the five-year anniversary and the one-year anniversary of Pickle Shack. And between the two companies, there's about 45 to 50 employees. And we throw parties every year, anniversary parties, because we take it very seriously. But the five-year mark is just such a, Mm -hmm. that's like, that's the benchmark for like, okay, you actually got a shot. You're going to make it, right? And um, I just remember being surrounded by those 50 people and, you know, we're drinking beer and we're hanging out and all of a sudden they're like, hey, say something. And it was just like, it brought (laughs) literally... I can be kind of like hard on the sleeve, you know, uh, empathetic kind of emotional person. I'm actually like getting a little eyes are doing something right now, like just thinking about it. But, um, you know, looking around and, and, and seeing like this army of amazing people that believe in the vision, but also knowing that on the pickle company side of the end, the majority of the coworkers there have been there longer than the half-life of the company. And that still rings true going into our seventh year of business. And to think that, you know, now there's a career trajectory that has spun off of this crazy weirdo idea of like, I'm going to start a pickle company, whatever, it's cool, you know. That's really just so important when that those kind of like precious fleeting, you know, we have to be this small batch or this or that, whatever. Like, no, we're an awesome company. We're a 21st century company with these ideals that are different than the kind of, you know, antiquated uh, commodity brands that are out there. And we have strong intentions and a clear path that we're on, and that that's it, kind of all, all in a nutshell mm-hmm. for me. Yeah, absolutely. So taking it from those uh, those long nights to a company that uh, is, is selling pickles to Japan and all over the world. And Australia, goodness, yeah. South Africa, mm-hmm. uh, throughout the U.K., Canada, fully distributed nationwide. I mean, yeah. it's mind-blowing to think about. Well, uh, I think that's a, a good place to, to stop it. That's all the time we have today, Seamus. Uh, thank you very, very much thank you for, having for your us. time. Uh, to learn more about Brook and Brine, uh, you can uh, go to brookandbrine.com. Yes. Yes. And uh, to listen to more podcasts from this series, find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and follow us on SoundCloud. And before we go, one last word from our sponsor. When you're running a small business, you know that whatever can happen probably will. Chase for Business offers you a complete view of your finances. So no matter what comes your way, you can own it. Find business news, stories, insights, and expert tips all in one place at chase.com slash for business.